what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. Being real with yourself and having that internal self-talk goes back to our entire philosophy of self-confidence. Welcome back to Meet Bridget, Kashia here. I'm the COO and co-host of the Meet Bridget podcast. Together with my best friend and partner, Asha Gabriel, I help run a confidence and communication platform for teen girls called Bridget. We're back today with another one-on-one episode. We've spoken at length before about things like body image, eating disorders, and motherhood. And this episode is in its own way an extension of those discussions. It's the other side of the coin where we examine the habits and routines that when implemented in a balanced way can make a hugely positive impact on all other areas of our lives and help contribute to a confident lifestyle. Welcome back, everybody. This is Asha. And as we did with our other episodes, uh, we want to include a little disclaimer that we will be candidly discussing issues, possibly including but not limited to uh, body dysmorphia, eating disorders, depression, pregnancy, pregnancy loss, and more. And should any of those things be triggering to you at this time, please feel free to sit this episode out or to see our show notes for resources. Additionally, this conversation is sourced and biased by our own personal experiences. Our hope is that that if you find yourself in any of the stages we discuss, you won't feel alone. So welcome back, everybody. We are excited to get into, you know, we did talk about body image, some of the issues and tensions and pressures of just living in our society today, particularly as women around these issues of, of body image. And our hope is that today, you know, we provide some some solutions, some ideas, and, you know, tools and practices for our audience as it relates to using food and exercise um, to create confidence. We're all about confidence at Bridget. And Keish and I have both found food and exercise when used in a healthy and balanced way can really impact that central feeling of confidence. Agreed. As a reminder, um, in our previous episodes, we'll just kind of skim over what we talked about before, but body image is a combination of the thoughts and feelings that you have about your body. We talked at length about this in our body image specific episodes, so please go back and give that a listen if you have not already. You know, we really did talk about, you know, our own personal journeys of self-image starting from the beginning when we became self-aware and body confidence, our our own personal journeys with things like body dysmorphia and the things that have shaken our self-image, like Asha's diagnosis of thyroid cancer and what that was like for her and how, how it was to process that. And, you know, my own journey with pregnancy and motherhood and pregnancy loss. And we also talked a little bit about pop culture, which I think is going to come up again in this episode because of not just pop culture, not just the celebrities that influence the way that we think about body, image, food, exercise, diet, culture, and things like that, but also how social media as a whole, you know, having something in front of you every day gives you a direct link to be able to constantly compare yourself in your routines to other people. So. We really want to take a deeper look at how Asha and I have been able to utilize 
things like food and movement to really create confidence in ourselves and create balanced routines that help us recenter as opposed to, you know, continually feeling chaotic in our bodies or feeling chaotic in the world. So, yeah, I think that to frame our conversation, we were talking earlier about how you and I have both found that whether it com- when it comes to food or exercise, we've both found ourselves in this place where it's like, whatever we're doing, we're using intuition. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the most success we found is like when we're eating and moving our bodies intuitively. Um, so with that frame, I think we can go back to like our discovery of our bodies and how they move and how food affects us. And maybe even taking it back like to the early stages, like when did you first become aware of your body, the uniqueness of your body, and how you might like to move your body, any self-consciousness, um, as early as you can kind of remember your your awareness of your body? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I hope this is consistent with what I said in our last episode. I actually have a separate anecdote. And I don't know that this was the moment of first awareness, but I do remember I had an episode as a kid where I was on vacation with my family. I was probably two or three years old and I love the water and I had been having a great time swimming in the pool. And for some reason, I remember distinctly thinking as a three-year-old, I'm going to take my life jacket off and I'm just going to go for it. So I jumped in and thankfully it was just like the hot tub at the time. But I remember like moving my arms and legs and looking up as I was sinking to the bottom (laughs) because I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, I just wasn't body aware enough to know like how to swim back up to the top. It's like a core memory. You know, I remember like literally looking up and like I wasn't really afraid. I was just confused. Like, okay, I'm moving my arms and legs. This feels like what I would normally do. This looks like swimming, but I'm not going anywhere. There, you know, I feel like through adulthood, those situations come up again. That's just an anecdote. But I I know that like as a kid, like I was always on the clumsier side. Like I wasn't one of those like natural athletes. Like a lot of my boy cousins were, um, grew up with a lot of boys and we had so much fun, but they were like, you know, little monkeys. I could jump from like one side of the playground to the other and just swing like so fluidly. And that did not come naturally to me. I was a lot clunkier and had to like really think about hand-eye coordination. And so I think what I'm trying to say is my initial awareness of my body was that it didn't, you know, those athletic movements were things that I had to really work harder on. And it took time and practice over the years to like really figure out what felt good to me, what felt natural. And truly, like it wasn't really until adulthood that I realized like, oh, I'm really good at things like golf naturally. (laughs) Some people would be like, that's not a sport because she had the PGA tour would say otherwise sport. My husband would say otherwise, but really good at things like that. Not great at things like volleyball. (laughs) So really great at like activities that are more um, solo, like really great at dance. Some, some movements in dance, not graceful enough to be a ballerina like you are Ashi, but You know, those are just some of my initial memories of like having to work a little bit harder at some of the athletic type movements and then really figure out where I fit in. What was your experience like? Because I know you started dance very early and that was like one of your very first loves. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that if I could look at it as like an arc, the big change for me, which didn't happen until adulthood, was that when like earlier as a child, I felt like I was constantly looking at my body and then wanting it to function and look as normal as possible and as most like the other people around me as possible. And I think when I was really young and when I started like growing, um, I was really lanky and skinny. And I remember feeling self-conscious about that. And like there was a period that period in like elementary school, you know, where I'd go home and like I remember coming home, you know, and like making like a bowl of ice cream and like trying to eat ice cream every day to and then people tell these stories like this and they're just like, oh wow, wow, you are too skinny, you know. But like for me it was like I look back at that girl and I'm like, I just wanted to not stand out. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing, like, dance is complicated. And I know a lot of dancers, we did have Katie Wee on, um, mm-hmm. was an amazing, was a professional dancer for a long time and has a whole, you know, very complex experience with the dance world and how that impacts yeah. life later. So check that episode out. She is phenomenal. But dance is complicated in that, like, I was shy as a child. So like, dance was my outlet. Like, I felt like I could kind of be free without words through dance. Mm-hmm. It was very structured. And I and I have also found as an adult, like my body, I am excellent at like body awareness and control. Like mm-hmm. yoga is something that I really like have connected to. Dance is that way. Um, lifting is also that way. And like kind of strength training because it's like very much focused. Like I'm good at anything that like requires me to have form, you mm-hmm. know, control and pace. But I'm not like a hand-eye coordination girl. Like, I really am not. I actually feel like this. So, (laughs) side note, it's very rare that these moments come up. But this feels like a gem because we talk about everything all the time. We've never talked about this before. And I actually feel like that resonates so much with me. Like, I was clunking through, like, my first experiences. But what you just said really hits home because it's that focus. It's that internal focus. Those are the things that I felt like I was good at where you could like practice yes. but yeah that anti-coordination or like having a teammate have to depend on you to like pass a ball or spike a ball like that ball is ball. not where my natural yeah, the ball hits you in the nose and create a nosebleed yeah no oh my god um one of my first major injuries was playing kickball on the court because like I don't know if it was like the pressure or I just truly like did not have the physical capability but like I went to go kick like a slow rolling ball and like yeah. fell backwards. <laughs> had my so many defense. things like tetherball, tetherball. Yeah. I that was like a big thing in my elementary school, and, and yeah. like, every, like it was really cool to be good at tetherball. So I was like, yeah. I have to learn this. So I, I <laughs> kept trying, <laughs> kept trying, and literally, I think it was like the fifth time I got a nosebleed from the ball literally hitting me in the face. That oh I was my like, gosh, maybe I should stop trying this. And I just think that like. I, you know, I look back and I have so much compassion for that little girl because I'm like, now I know, like, I think I've gotten to a place, you know, in adulthood where it's like, all right, like, some things are going to be weaker for me. Mm-hmm. And there are weaknesses where it's like, I should work on that weakness. But then there's also weaknesses where it's like, but I also have these strengths and maybe I should actually like lean into my strengths Focus. more. Yeah. I'm not so much on trying to be everything. Yeah. You know, so I think that like dance, dance was so attractive to me in that it like, it spoke to that like body awareness. Like I am someone that like when I hear music, I feel it in my entire body. I can't not walk to a beat when I walk. Like I just, my body, I'm aware of my body from like, you know, my head to my toes to my mm-hmm. fingertips. But like, 
I, for whatever reason, like when there's a ball flying at me, I just can't, I cannot, <laughs> you know, I tried all the sports and stuff and, you know, basketball and everyone's like, oh, you're so tall. You should be in basketball. So I tried that. And it's like, I like to play these things. I think I like, it's good to like stretch your, um, you stretch what you think you can and can't do. Like you don't know your limits until you test them. So I'm still glad I tried all these things. But looking back and like now it's like when I choose forms of exercise that I think really fuel me and are an outlet for me and that I can excel at, like I, I have used that awareness of myself and what, mm-hmm. I, what I'm drawn to and what makes me feel good. I've used that in like the choice of like exercise patterns and the same thing with, with food, you know, I think, yeah. that, I think that I had the, like a lot of height growing up and I think I've mentioned this in the, in the body image issue that I like, it was before the internet when I had this idea that I remember kind of looking into, or I was curious about whether there is a surgery that could cut off part of your couch. Oh my gosh, you did you- talk about this. <laughs> And fuse it to your ankles to make you shorter. And just it's like, so oh. sad that, like, as kids, we have oh, these, yeah. like, yeah. I know. And it's just like, it's fine. Everybody has versions of these, like, weird, you know, insecure know. stuff. That reminds me when I was little, like, really little, I remember thinking that I could, like, grow up to be, like, a blonde haired, blue eyed girl, which is, like, so bizarre. And, like, <laughs> like, I must have been, like, three or four, like, yeah. never, you know. And you see, like, all the like the image at the time was like Barbie and Polly Pocket was yeah. like predominantly blonde hair, blue eyed. So that was like, and like in cartoons, like Babs Bunny and like all all the cute. There was like, um, I was obsessed with the mask with Jim Carrey, but Cameron Diaz is like oh, yeah. so hot in that movie. And I just remember like, so your my image at the time of like what is like beautiful and like desirable. I like really thought that I could like grow up to be that. And so I remember yeah. telling a teacher that one time and she was like, I hate to break it to you, kid, but it's going to take a lot of work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, but just like these thoughts is like as early as like early childhood where yeah. you don't even really fully understand like, okay, like that. No, that's not real. Those thoughts were in our mind and uh, our minds. And I think that you look at today's children and just the, the, abundance of information you know from every every direction it's like how much earlier are they going to have those kinds of thoughts and experience I would say the one good thing though like and I know we always kind of harp on today's world and how comparison is really killing the vibe (laughs) for most young people but I I would say one positive is that the other side of that coin with this influx of information is there is so much more diversity and access to information. Mm-hmm. So I think the one benefit of it is that like you get to showcase other cultures and the way other people look. And like, there's just, there's a lot more exposure to that, I think earlier on. So if, if I were to say there were one benefit of it, that is one, one of them, like, you know, kids from any part of the world can take a look at what's online and just be like oh they're you know here's somebody that looks like me that's doing this and and so I think in that way it can be a powerful tool when used correctly totally I think there's education online you know I I think that I've definitely especially once you like identify kind of your interests and you can you can learn about interests and and different ways to move your body and stuff like the internet it's like I have 
you know, trainers that I follow and I'm like, oh, that's like a great tip about form. Like I want to focus on like my glute more than my quad. Like it's like this angle that I want to focus on. And like, and that's all interesting, you know, and educational. That's how we found Dr. May Hughes. She was like, yeah, yeah. Which um, she's great about creating confidence in yourself, especially during the perinatal pregnancy time and, you know, figuring out how to move your body when you're in this state of being so unfamiliar with your body. Yeah. I think it'd be fun to talk about like resets, you know, times where it's like either you were doing your approach to food and exercise was like not right for Mm -hmm. what was going on with you and when you had to like reset it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, I've, I well, feel like I have a few of those, but start same, with like same. your first one. Well, I don't know about my first one. I think so. My relationship with food and movement was a little complicated in high school because I think at that time my self identity was really shaky. Um, outwardly, I think I came across as being very confident and stable in like how I saw myself. But I think internally, I really was struggling for a lot of different reasons. I, you know, I started this unhealthy relationship in high school with a person that really, you know, took my confidence levels down. I had never really felt like I was quote unquote athletic. And looking back, you know, I just hadn't figured out the things that I really enjoyed doing or, you know, what I was good at and like started focusing in those directions. But I think looking back, one of the good things is that I've always just tried to continue adapting. So you wouldn't have known that about me as a child or a teen. And I think that like my first real like reset and like trying to find control within my environment was after my first year of college, I had like gained a little bit of weight after going to college. And it it was kind of to the point where, you know, it was impacting like my energy levels and how I felt. And so I started paying a lot more attention to what I was eating. You know, you move out of school. I was living in the dorms at the time. And like, I think just having access to like food, not the same type of food that you have at home, you just kind of like go a little nuts. And so there was like a lot of chicken fingers and French fries and like, just like a little too much overindulging. And so after my first year of college, I remember thinking like, you know, I'd like to feel better. I was you know, now coming out of that bad relationship, now trying to rebuild my identity and feel more confident about myself and feel more like I had the ability to control at least one thing, which is myself, my body, like how I feel in my body. And so I got back into exercising, which now that I say it out loud, I'd always been active. Like I'd always like jump roped or ran on the treadmill or like had some kind of routine even in high school, even though I didn't, you know, wasn't in like a group sport other than like dance team for a year or two. But I like got back into a routine and like started exercising again. I got really into hiking because I felt like that was something that I could do that didn't require like a thought process. I tried a bunch of stuff actually. Like at that time, P90X was really big. And like yeah, the, the like all of those programs were really big, like Tybo. Was big. Yes. And so I did a little bit of everything. I actually really liked Tybo. P90X at the time, like I was not like an avid exerciser at the time. So it was a little too intense for me. But then I was like, oh, maybe I'll try hiking because like that's what people in LA do. And so I like fell in love with that because I was like, I can do this every day. And it's strenuous and it's hard. It's kind of like running where like you have to keep the momentum up and like just keep going. 
And so in that, that was really the first time that I started learning how to move intuitively with my body by doing something that was at a level hard enough to be challenging, but not so hard that I was like passing out. Yeah. And then I started examining the types of foods I was eating. And that was a little rough because when you're figuring out food, like what's at your disposal is like diet culture. And we can get into that a little bit more. Um, But that's, that's really when I started focusing on how to reset. And it, it really did start with movement. And I, as an adult, even now, usually when I do a reset, I, I start with the movement portion of it. And then I can kind of focus on like, okay, so like, how am I augmenting what I'm eating to match how I'm feeling physically, like with movement and stuff. And then I go from there. I've never really thought of that before. I think for some people it's opposite. They start with food and then and then go into movement, but I do it the other way. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it can go it can go either way depending on kind of what where you're at and where mm-hmm. you're starting. I think that a lot of people can relate to those like like your college, like after that first year of college and having to be like, "Whoa, like I kind of kind of find something that works for me again." Mm-hmm. Um and I think there's all sorts of just kind of like those those transition moments kind of sometimes come with you know, changes in how we're eating and moving our bodies. Okay. I was going to think about like when my first one sort of happened. I mean, you and I have talked about before, like my sister and I were in a car accident in high school and um, she was injured pretty severely. It was like her pelvis was fractured. She was okay and mm-hmm. healed over time. But I think just that like experience of being in a car accident with my sister um, for me triggered like this sense of feeling out of control. And in high school, like the cultural I guess you could say like kind of like the zeitgeist yeah like everything going on all at once like all the yeah things. Mm-hmm. yeah was that you know it was like all that like diet culture like low fat and no cholesterol and like mm-hmm. this like lo- no calorie and fake sugars and all this stuff was kind of like swirling around in this big diet industry so I was kind of like looking at that and like looking at the magazines and all this stuff and mm-hmm. I remember feeling like I was in ballet at the time and I was like, oh, like ballet feels good because it's such a controlled environment. Like you are in control of your body. Everything looks good and like angles and all this stuff. And I think I, I started applying that also to the way I was eating. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I never was like diagnosed with like an actual eating disorder, but I definitely became very controlled with diet and only allowing myself certain things mm-hmm. and everything. And, um, you know, that went on for a little bit until you know, my, my, my mom took me to a therapist, which I am so grateful for now. Um, and she had a way of so gently like walking me. She just had me talk about my, my life and this is in high school. So it's like, I don't want to go to therapy, but my mom was just like, you, you know, you're in this accident and like, I think you're still dealing with some stuff. Um, and it helped me kind of realize that like, oh, maybe the way I've been with myself is tied to what I went through, you know, with, with your sister. And I look back and I'm like, you know, I have compassion for that, that it's like, okay, you know, like I did, I kind of went a little extreme in one direction. So that was kind of something I was like working on through the end of high school. And then when I went to college, it was funny because it, I, most people are like, oh, the freshman 15 from like drinking and all this uh-huh. stuff. I almost had to, I was like, oh, now I'm in this environment where I fully control what I'm eating and drinking or not, you know, or not eating or drinking, uh-huh. you know, and I don't have the structure of like, family dinners and okay. stuff to at least kind of like keep me plugged in. So I feel like that was another like adjustment period through like having to be like, okay, like, you know, let's take care of our bodies a little bit and 
how can we recreate feeling good? And I think that, um, I started going to the gym, but like, (laughs) I don't know. Also at that time, like no one's really talking about like working out in like my circles. I like, I knew dance and people were in sports, but I didn't know anyone that was like just working out just to like feel strong and healthy. Um, so I went, I would go to the UCLA gym and like, it was so intimidating because it's so big and there's athletes in there and stuff. So I would just like, well, I know how to use the cardio machines and I know how to mm-hmm. do crunches. So I'd literally like, <laughs> I'd do cardio and then I'd do like an ab routine and yeah. then I'd do cardio <laughs> and I'd leave and I'd do that every single day. Yeah. And, you know, it was very like, we've talked about like being like skinny fat is kind of like yeah. the term, I think for it, where it's like, I was super, super skinny, but there was no, like, not really a lot of like muscle tone yeah. on my body. Cause I was just in the state of burning it, you know, burning it all off. And, um, you know, and that can actually do quite a bit of damage, I think, to your like mm-hmm. adrenals and just your okay. body feeling like it's in a state of just stress, stress. Yeah. Yeah. Time, especially if you're not feeding it with the right nutrients, um, consistently. So I think that was a, definitely learned that was a jumping off point for me, like getting into the gym and trying to figure out what to do. But I think as I started incorporating more low impact and like strengthening exercises, then I started learning like, oh, like there's different forms of working out and some make me feel good and some make me feel tired. Uh And I, I went to a yoga class with a girl. She was actually an ice skater, um, professional ice skater who was in my sorority. And she was like, oh, she's like, I need to start doing some things. She's like, I know you were a dancer. I need to start doing some things to um, stay in shape when I'm not skating. She's like, do you want to go to this yoga class with me in Santa Monica? And we started going to yoga. And I was like, wow, like yoga is like dance, except there's no mirrors. And like you're breathing when you do it. And no one's looking at you. You don't have to look the same way as the person next to you. And I was like, this is like all the best parts of dance you know, in terms of like feeling my body and moving to music and everything. Mm-hmm. But there's all the hard things and the controlling things and the comparison things are not here. Okay. So that was like my intro to like healthy movement. I actually would agree with that because I think yoga was the first type of movement and first type of exercise that I ever did where I got so um, fascinated by how small shifts in movement really impacted the sensation of moving your body, what muscles you were triggering. And it was that whole internal conversation. You know, it's very, yoga is a very um, internal practice in a lot of ways. So you're moving your body, but a big part of it is creating that mindful connection to each one of the movements that you're doing, including your breathing. And I would agree that, you know, I was never like super flexible or like dancerly in that way. Like when I did dance, like the part, the dance that I'm good at, it's like hip hop, which is, I think a lot of people are good at hip hop. It's more like (laughs) they're using, yeah. Firsthand girl. Yeah. Many, many a boat day (laughs) in particular after your wedding. (laughs) But yeah, I think yoga was such a great introduction into creating that mind-body awareness. And I really took that practice into Pilates, which is like my next love. Like I love Pilates so much because it's a very similar practice in that, again, you have to be very focused on fine muscle movements. It's not as spiritual as yoga, but in terms of being technical and looking at form in movement. Um, I really loved Pilates for that. And 
it carried over into every other type of practice that I did there on out and has been so helpful in understanding proper form and technique, especially for things like heavy lifting, which is it's super, super important. I would say the most important part of heavy lifting is making sure that your form is on point because you could really injure yourself or, you know, activate the wrong muscle groups with the wrong movements. And so I would agree yoga, yoga, and then Pilates. I think both of them too, like that it's really where that it comes down to like body awareness. Uh-huh. I think that once they started getting into yoga and Pilates, it was kind of at the same time, like it was yoga uh-huh. for a long time. And then I like introed, like uh, it was like before like the big Pilates craze, but I remember yeah. hearing about Pilates as um, something that like professional dancers were doing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool. And they had a, a Pilates class that was like through UCLA mm-hmm. um, that you could like sign up for as like a class to take. And I went in and took it and there were only like five people in this class and most of them were like older women. And yeah. I was just like, no one's talking about this yet, but I'm like, but it feels so good. Yeah. Um, and like, oh, like I really am like isolating different parts of my body. And I think that that body awareness and feedback also started started informing the way I looked at food a little bit where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, like I can eat certain foods and realize like how I feel afterwards, you know, and and use that as a little bit of like how like even just being aware of like how I feel after eating certain okay. things or not eating certain things. I feel like that conversation started started happening. I also what I love about yoga is like, you know, they encourage you that it's like if you're not feeling it or you're having a tough day and you need to just like go into child's pose and chill for a little while, do it. And I was like, this is so new because like to me in sports and dance and stuff, it was always like push through, you know, which I think that energy is good sometimes, you know, sometimes you want to be like, I can do hard things. Like I can get over this mental block. But I think that when your body's really being like, nope, we had no sleep last night or we're going through something real tough or we worked really hard yesterday already and we're sore, you know, and we need a breather. You know, I think it's being able to kind of know that that's something you can do and still make progress that was totally that even like and it just feels so good like it is an active stretch that just feels really nice I also think that like even knowing that you oh you can take a break and go into child's pose yeah I don't off I haven't often done that yeah but but something about even just knowing like that is an option to me yeah almost helped me be like but do I need it you know, and like, oh, I'm in this pose and it's starting to get uncomfortable. I could, I can take a break. Yeah. You know, and then like thinking about like whether or not I need that right then mm-hmm. almost kind of helped me have the stamina to be like, okay, but I don't really need one. Like maybe it's just in my head. Like, let's just stick it out. But it's a good practice in mental fortitude, which I think is a really big part of developing confidence. You know, yes. you learn your limitations and you learn, you kind of hold yourself accountable. Like, Am I, am I just, you know, taking the easy way out or can I do it for like another one second, two seconds, three seconds? And I think in that way, movement is really powerful because it is in every way, not just in yoga, but like if you're having that internal monologue during, you know, times of exercise, you can really coach yourself through these situations. And um, it's good practice for everything else in life, I think. It sounds like one of the themes that's emerging here for both of us is that one, following your intuition and listening to your body is really key. But another is like creating these routines for yourself and consistency. 
how would you say that having consistency and movement has served you during times of stress, whether it's emotional or physical? Do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about what your physical activity was like, say, pre-thyroid cancer diagnosis and then during your diagnosis? Absolutely. So I think that in fitness, nutrition, and in many, many things, the more things that you can create, I think there's different arguments about like how long it takes to make a habit, but like the more things that you can kind of like set and forget, Mm -hmm. um, the better, like it's like creating less resistance for yourself in a, in a way. Crockpot. want your body to feel resistance like resistance training is good but like mental resistance like eliminating the mental resistance to get yourself into those Mm -hmm. routines um, serves so much um I felt like I mean even pre pre thyroid stuff you know I had this experience so many times getting to my yoga mat where like I was tired or stressed or you know I had school stuff to do or it was just my body wasn't feeling you know, it's just like, I don't want, I don't want to work out right now. I don't want to do even yoga, which like I know is going to make me feel good. But then every time I'd get there and just like let go and be present at the end, I was like, I'm so glad I came, you know? So in my mind, I had this awareness of like, oh, the hardest part of the workout is getting in the door, getting on your mat, you know, the class or whatever it is, it's just showing up. So that realization is like, okay, well then if I can make this part of my schedule where it's like on Mondays, I do this at noon or like I, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, like right now, like I see a trainer Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, at 8am. And I know they're waiting for me there. You know, that's a luxury to have like a trainer, but just any kind of something where it's like, it's just on the calendar. I know it's every once in a while my schedule changes and I have to cancel it and whatever, but I don't have to make the choice of like, what am I going to do today? If I can kind of like create the routine going back to like the pre and post um, thyroid stuff. One thing I had experienced leading up to, I actually, so I had um, Hashimoto's. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's right as I graduated college. And prior to that diagnosis and starting to bounce my, my hormones out a little bit, I had always felt very cold all the time. I was just always perpetually cold. And I felt like even though I was like integrating yoga and some more like kind of strength training type things. I still didn't feel like I was um, able to have much stamina and that I couldn't really build a lot of muscle tone. Um, And those things are all actually related to having an imbalanced thyroid. Um, For me, it was like my thyroid hormones were were low. My thyroid wasn't producing enough thyroid hormones. So once I started taking my medication Synthroid and balancing out my thyroid levels, I I immediately noticed this shift where I was like, oh, wow, like I have more energy. Like I can I feel stronger, you know, already. And I started like when I was strength training, like I could start seeing like my muscles developing after balancing out my hormones. That was an immediate change and was very encouraging for me because I was like, oh, now I can kind of see where this goes. You know, so I got I got a little bit more into, you know, like strength training and stuff like that. So I had my thyroid cancer diagnosis the year I was engaged. So it's the year before my wedding. And I remember kind of it was a it was a shock for me because it was like, all right, like this, I felt kind of in a way like when that I got that diagnosis, I felt like I was I had been hitting my stride a little bit physically. I was like, oh, like I figured out like I feel like my relationship with food is getting better. I identified I had some food allergies and like was aware of like what made me feel good and what didn't and like, you know, really reaching for the right things. 
So, and then also was like training pretty like regularly and then getting that, I felt really like betrayed by my body mm-hmm. in a way. I was like, oh, I felt like I was doing everything right. Like how do I have cancer? Yeah. But then once I kind of like got over that a little bit, I feel like that was when I started really like leading up to my wedding and after my um, thyroid cancer surgery, I started really working with a trainer and like lifting. And at first I started with that, like how you were talking about like what starting with one thing and then like growing in the mm-hmm. other thing mm-hmm. started, mm-hmm. Uh, started with lifting more. Mm-hmm. And then um, my trainer was like, you should really start thinking about adding more protein to your diet. Yeah, And I was like, well, no, like protein is like going to make me bulky. So I was like, huh, that's cute. And I just didn't do it for a while, but I wasn't really seeing a lot of results. And at the same time, Andrew was training at the same place and like following, eating a certain amount of protein. I'm like, damn, like he's really like, I see (laughs) quilts happening with him and men are different. Their bodies are different. But I was like, fine. Like, I'm just going to see. Yeah. Let's just like track a little bit and see how many grams of protein he really wants me to eat. You know, and once I started eating protein right away, it started feeling like so much better, mm-hmm. started having so many more re- results, visual results, like feeling results. It was like I felt awesome yeah. <laughs> by the amount of protein that I, I literally was like, I never even thought I would ever eat that much like protein in my diet. I know. Um, it's actually kind of hard to get the protein it's difficult. In. Yeah. Yeah. Because they say they that you want to do, I mean, most trainers say that the ideal ratio for protein is a one-to-one. So yeah. one gram of protein per one pound of body weight. And so, I mean, most people are not 100 pounds and 100 grams of protein is a lot as it is. But yes. Yeah. So it's it's like, and that's the thing too, is like if you're having, I think that women for years and years have been hounded by like calorie restricted mm-hmm. diets. You know, and it's, it's actually, if you're eating a certain amount of protein, protein is, is, um, very filling and yeah. I think it's like four, relative, four calories per gram too. Yeah. Relative, yeah. Relative to other food groups like carbs yeah. and fats and stuff, it isn't quite as many like calories for how filling it is. Right. Yeah. So I, when I was on that level of protein, I was like, oh, actually like my calories are kind of just, they're falling into place, like where I want mm-hmm. to kind of have results leading up to my wedding because I got a little more organized with that. Which you were uh, so ripped. I remember like another core memory is like being in the beautiful beaches of Miami or in the water uh, in Miami. And I remember it was literally our last day. And I, it's one of my favorite memories of you, Asha, which is probably why it's imprinted. But we were just like, we're leaving this afternoon. Um, Jonica and I had just had like a feast at the buffet. <laughs> we all went to the water. And you just look like an angel, like in the water, like the sun shining and it was like bath water. And I remember being like, your abs look so good. Like you were ripped. So nice. And you're like, I've just been eating a lot of protein and lifting heavy. And um, honestly, well, that's so funny because I feel like we all have our spots. Right. Yeah. And I think my biggest like spot of like self-consciousness has always been like my tummy. Really? You know? Some people it's like, oh, like my thighs or my hips or my arms or whatever. And for me, it was always like my tummy. Yeah. And I feel like the periods of time that I've felt most confident in that spot have been when I'm eating the most protein. Yeah. Like things just kind of like take care of themselves. But yeah, during that time, it was like, it was so cool because clearly what what I'm saying is that I was like tracking macros Mm -hmm. and like trying to eat a certain amount of protein 
and like see, you know, how many carbs am I having and like, what does the calories look like? And just being mindful of like kind of what I'm, what I'm eating. I don't think that that's always like sustainable for like, I'm going to just track macros for the rest of my life. I think for me, it was really helpful because I was like, okay, you know, if I'm listening to this trainer and they're saying like, if you're doing this amount of lifting Mm -hmm. and stuff, you need this amount of nutrition and you'll, that will yield this result. Um, It was the first time in my life where I was like, oh, wow, actually, like if I give my body what it needs and move it in a way, you know, that challenges it, I will have results. I think Mm -hmm. leading up to that experience, I was always like, ah, you know, like no matter what I do, like, I don't know how I'm going to get that kind of result or like my body just won't ever look that way or I won't ever feel confident in the shape of my body because like... I didn't feel confident in my body's ability to respond to inputs, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I felt like after kind of putting those things together, I was like, oh, no, like this is science, like exercise and nutrition. It's like a, it's a science, you know, and every body is capable of thriving with the right combination of exercise and nutrition. Um, It's just a matter of like finding what that, that combination is. Yeah, what your formula is. Yes. And that created so much confidence for me because I was like, oh, no, like I have the power to either choose to follow this kind of like combination or not. Yeah. But I make that choice. And when I do follow it, I will see results. And I think that that is so empowering. Yeah. I love that you talk about your initial diagnosis with Hashimoto's, too, because, you know, the thyroid is one thing that can really play into how your body processes food, proteins, Mm -hmm. sugars. I think right now, one of the things we're hearing a lot about, especially with this wave of Ozempic and Trulicity and Wagovi and all of those things that we we kind of talked about in one of our previous episodes as well, is blood sugar. And the glucose goddess, I actually really like her because she does talk about um, how, I forget the name of her book, but we can link it in our show notes. She does mm-hmm. talk about the science and her science is sound and she gives practical advice on how to augment the timing of your eating and the order of your eating as opposed to necessarily what you're consuming. She does talk about that, but she focuses a lot more on eating proteins first, eating fibers first. And then if you're going to have carbohydrates, obviously you want to have complex carbohydrates versus like refined or processed foods and sugars. But just having protein and fiber before you eat, say, like a strawberry or a piece of cake is going to lend to a lower glucose curve spike. So, and I love that you bring up the science of it. I think one of the big takeaways of that is starting out by examining your baseline fitness level, what you're eating, and how you feel when you're moving. I think it's really important for everybody to understand their body and go and do annual screenings to just figure out what you're working with. Like, is your thyroid healthy? Is your blood sugar normal? Because before you do anything else, addressing those things and just knowing what you're working with is really important. And then, you know, creating a routine for yourself is so helpful. I love how you talk about figuring out what your body likes, like when you're getting ready for your wedding required a different type of physical activity because you had a specific goal in mind. But increasing protein is always a great idea. And I think that also brings up another good point, which is understanding body composition. I think when we were growing up, the big thing was skinny fat was cutting out your calories and maybe cutting out all carbs 
And I think one of the things that we're really starting to understand as a society and another thing that I think social media does a good job of circulating is that there is just more information out there. And part of the good information is that it's not really about losing weight or the numbers on the scale. I think you have to examine body composition and, you know, utilize data and science to your strength. At least that's been my experience because coming off the tail of having body dysmorphia, being able to look at hard data when you can't always trust what your brain is telling you is really helpful. And I learned that, you know, and it comes and goes, like I'll look in the mirror and my body's changed dramatically over the last couple of years. Been through a lot. So it it should have changed dramatically. I'm getting older, I've had multiple pregnancies, I've had multiple pregnancy losses, you know, I've, you know, eaten differently at different times of my life. So I can't always trust when I look in the mirror, like, you know, how I feel emotionally really impacts what I see. And that's that's my plight with body dysmorphia. And so understanding that like things like the scale, like the number on the scale has a complex breakdown to it actually helps me recenter myself. So if I stand on the scale and I see a number, I'm like, okay, it's scientifically impossible to gain a pound of fat unless you're over consuming by thousands of calories like the day before, which is actually very difficult to do even when you are getting the right amount of protein in. And so if you can start to sit down with yourself, if you do find that you struggle with things similar to like me or similar to Asha, like sometimes sitting down and just understanding the basics of something, the basic principles, like how body weight is composed of different things, water, muscle, fat, it's not all like one size fits all. And understanding that if you create consistency for yourself and follow like numbers as if you're like a formula, you can really start to augment how you feel and figure out how movement impacts like your daily activity. And you can start to feel more confident in what you're actually seeing and doing. Yeah, I think that you make such a good point too about like just knowing that like you growing up, I feel like there's such a fixation on like this scale, mm-hmm. scale at just being like small, you know, and now it's like I think there is a healthier and there's more information about different different ways to measure things, right? It's like, okay, the number on the scale is one indicator. You know, there's also other things like, oh, how do I feel? Like, um, do I feel energetic? You know, do I feel strong when I'm going about my day? Do, am I getting tired? Is, you know, my energy dropping at a certain point of the day? Um, how am I sleeping? Like, how do my clothes fit me? And just like, just, there's so many different like gauges now that we can kind of like be aware of in combination with that, like, that just number on the scale. It's like, okay, like how much muscle mass am I, am I putting on? There's so many great studies too about, you know, we both have mothers who are getting older and we obviously want to like keep them healthy. Um, so I've been doing a lot of research about like aging and health and there's just tremendous research saying that muscle mass, like maintaining muscle mass as you age, especially as a woman is like the most mm-hmm the most impactful way to keep feeling good and to have longevity and everything because it, our muscle and bone density, like it just naturally does exponentially start decreasing mm-hmm. with age. You also like actively working, yes. uh, you know, to combat that. And the best thing for it is, is resistance training or strength. Yes. Training. Especially in women who've had children and multiple yes. children, the 
the decrease in muscle mass and bone density for women who have had children is increased exponentially as we get older. Like going back to like the resistance part of it too, it doesn't have to be anything crazy. I, I was just talking to both my parents about this pretty recently, but even just implementing like walking, like going for, you know, a moderately hilly walk or just even a flat walk if you don't do anything. I mean, just going for a walk can really do so much for your body, just that movement alone. One of the things that I did with my pregnancy with my son in the beginning, I was not allowed to do any exercise. They considered me high risk. And so I was like you know, losing my mind because I'm like, at this point in my life, movement has become a form of therapy for me. It's, you know, that internal self-talk. It's an opportunity to reconnect brain and body. Um, and so for so many different reasons, other than just even how I feel physically, it it really does affect my my daily routine. And so I usually, you know, try and move several times a week. I try to do some type of movement. Right now I'm really loving doing resistance training and weightlifting. And so I try to weightlift like four or five times a week. And if I'm not feeling it one of those days, I just rest, you know, like you create the structure for yourself with moments and opportunities such as with child's pose to be like, okay, if I really can't do it today, then this is my child's pose day. This is my rest day. And then there are also days where I'm like, can I, can I push it? And sometimes I do. Going back to the routine, like it doesn't have to be anything crazy. Like you can literally get like a little ankle weight and just start doing a little resistance walk, you know, and that goes a long way. I mean, for my parents who are a bit older, you know, I think my mom's a lot more physically active than my dad is. And that might be true in a lot of cases. But I'm like, if you just put ankle weights on like one pound, one pound weights and then just go for, you know, like a 10, 15 minute walk, like it doesn't have to be like an hour long walk. It doesn't have to be like on a bike with like five, 10, 15 pound weights, like just start slow and easy and then just make it a part of your routine. Yeah. And I think that they, those layers of building things into your routine that feel good, mm -hmm. where it's like, try different things out. And it's like, okay, if something kind of is making you feel good, then like, how can you integrate it into your schedule in a way that you can kind of set it and forget it? Mm -hmm. um, then the other positive, I think we started to get into this, but didn't really fully cover it. I think that the one of the biggest strengths of having fitness and nutrition as part of like your routine is that like life happens. Like we have trips and things we go on or, or just like we get sick or something. But having had set up a routine means that even though you, when you get derailed, you know that like, okay, but next week I can just get right back on it. Like Monday morning, I can start and do this. And it's like very empowering to know that like even when life happens and we like, we, you know, get derailed a little bit, like the the comfort of our routine is also a way that like, you know, we don't have to be like, oh, just because I had, you know, a weekend that was just kind of, you know, I didn't really get to move my body and I didn't really eat what I thought I could. I still can. It doesn't mean I'm like, I'm, I failed. Mm -hmm. I'll just get back to my routine on Monday. And like the overall, the consistency of returning to, you know, the things that make you feel good does pay off, you know, in the yeah. long run. So we're talking a little bit about, about, you know, our consistency and our routine with 
fitness, like putting your classes or whatever you like to do on, on the schedule. But I know, you know, with your medical background and experience, there's also consistency and patterns and things to follow and integrate as it comes to nutrition. Can you, can you kind of delve into your experience from a medical background on impactful nutrition? Absolutely. I think, you know, our intro in talking about protein and increasing protein intake is like one of the key takeaways that I love from this because part of creating routine, like I've done um, macronutrient counting. I think it's really popular right now too, especially with, you know, social media. There's so many like really cool trainers out there. And if if you follow any of them, you might see that a lot of them utilize like different apps like MyFitnessPal or like Calorie Counter or whatever to track macronutrients. And macronutrients if you don't know, or just it's a fancy word for protein, carbohydrates, fat, and um, alcohol is the other. Did I miss something? No. Protein, carbs. I don't even, yeah. I think protein, the big carbs, the three yeah, yeah. But it's like the big three. And then they're technically there are four alcohols count as a type of macro, quote unquote, macronutrient because it's something that we consume. But But for all intents and purposes, we focus on carbs, proteins, fats. And so when you track those things, um, as Asha did before her wedding or I've done in the past to like really hone in on growing muscle and decreasing body fat, what you're doing is you're adjusting your body composition based on numbers and metrics. And so that can be very technical. It can also be unsustainable for long-term fitness and health and as a regimen, but it can be a really useful tool when you're working toward a goal. I also think it's a really good way to learn about the food that you're consuming. I think that was one of the strongest takeaways for me, just as a personal anecdote, is doing that for a couple months really teaches you what 30 grams of protein looks like, what five ounces of protein on your plate looks like, you know, how big a serving is. And so like moving forward in my adult life, it's actually enabled me to eat more intuitively because then I can be like, oh. I've had, you know, two meals today and about this this much salmon or this much uh, chicken or fish or, or what have you. And it's probably not quite enough to meet like the demands of my body. So like maybe I want to just throw in a little shake later. And I don't necessarily have to count anything. I'm not adding anything into an app. But like you you start to learn how to do things intuitively because you've experienced, you know, what it's like to track these things. So you you learn a lot in that process. So going back to like the scientific side of it and creating that routine, firstly, learning about those things, learning about what you're consuming, I think is really important. Um, And, you know, one way to do it is, as I mentioned, actually going through the motions of tracking what you're eating and figuring out what those macronutrients look like so that you can eat more intuitively. There are a lot of other tools that people utilize. um, The glucose goddess is one that's really popular right now. And she utilizes the science of, you know, adjusting blood glucose and how eating different meals at different times, like eating three meals and eliminating snacking helps decrease the spikes in blood glucose, which if if you know anything about that, blood glucose is attributed to all of your body's functions. You know, we get energy, our cells get energy from glucose or sugars. And there's different types of sugars. You know, you can get sugars from 
eating complex carbohydrates like starchy potatoes and sweet potatoes or things like that, or more simple carbohydrates like refined flours, like eating a piece of cake, like that's another form of carbs, but it's perhaps not as good because you're getting carbs from straight sugar. I think we should definitely link her book in the show notes because she actually does talk um, at great length about the science behind blood sugar spikes and how useful it can be just switching around the order of what you're eating. Another thing that's been really popular is, you know, intermittent fasting and um, time-restricted eating. And I think intermittent fasting is also a really useful tool. It's sort of... um, it's sort of like a supplementary tool to what you're eating. It's how you're eating and the timing of what you're eating. And there's different types. And I think this is something that there are plenty of experts that talk about this. Two of my favorites that I think are actually vetted and well-spoken and actually use proper science and you know have experience with this are two physicians who have excellent podcasts. And, and we'll link those too. But Dr. Mark Hyman and Dr. Peter Atiyah. They both have phenomenal podcasts, which actually talk about like, you know, practical applications of things like intermittent fasting versus time-restricted eating. And I think the big takeaway from that is like intermittent fasting, when people hear that, they think, okay, I'm only going to eat between these hours. But intermittent fasting for most, like when you're doing it properly is actually, you know, fasting, like not eating for like not eating on certain days of the week or not eating as much on certain days of the week and then eating normally in between. For example, like um, having a very calorie restricted diet on like Mondays and Wednesdays, but then eating whatever you want in the days in between. So that's like a version of intermittent fasting that a lot of weightlifters have used and athletes have used because it, you, your body go through, goes through something called cycling, carb cycling, and cellular autophagy. But I think the more sustainable thing here, not to get like too into the science, and what most people think of when they think of intermittent fasting is actually what is called time-restricted eating. And I think that's a lot more sustainable. And time-restricted eating is when you actually eat in a window. So you like start your day and have breakfast at like 8 a.m., And then you stop eating by like 5 p.m. And then allow your body the rest and time to go through cellular autophagy, which is cell death. And it's something that everyone's body goes through on a daily basis. And it's the way that our body processes toxins and allows itself the time to digest and metabolize. Part of the reason this has become so popular is because until recently, the the standard American diet meant that you were eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner at whatever times during the day, but you needed to get three square meals in. And everyone works and has different routines or, or I should say, most people have jobs and different routines that can sometimes make following anything standardized a challenge. But when you adjust your dietary window, to something that works for you. For example, you only eat between specific hours of the day, not anything crazy. It just means you eat breakfast at 10 and stop it at six, or, you know, you eat breakfast at eight and stop at five. It gives your body time during that downtime to actually process what you've eaten for the day and utilize all of the food and nutrition and energy that you're putting in for all of the movements that you need. Because at night, 
theoretically you're sleeping from like, you know, most people go to bed anywhere between eight and 10 or eight and 12 and, and get up, you know, sometime around six to seven, eight a.m. Unless you're my teenage brother who wakes up at like 1 p.m. in the afternoon. <laughs> but it just gives your body the time and rest that it needs to process these foods. So these are just a couple tools in the like the a little bit of the science behind it. And I don't want to get too technical because I'm not the expert here, but there it lends into the conversation we're having about using different ways of tracking food and tracking time and creating routines that work for you in order to establish confidence in your routine and in your daily movements and habits and doing it in a way that's not zero to a hundred or, you know, all or nothing, but doing it in a way that's like, okay, well, I think it'd be pretty feasible for me to start, you know, shifting my diet habits to, you know, maybe just a a 10 hour time restricted eating window so that I'm giving my body time to rest and then like focusing on eating foods that make me feel good in between those hours and focusing on like increasing movement a little bit throughout the week. Like those are very easy ways to begin that journey. And I think that routine, showing up for yourself, being accountable and being real with yourself and having that internal self-talk goes back to our entire philosophy of self-confidence and looking within and, you know, trusting in yourself to create that routine. And then that's how that confidence is really built. And I think too, you know, once people talk about like creating a routine, and I think both of us can relate to the experience of sometimes you create a routine routine and then something mm-hmm. in your body or life changes. So oh, yeah. Necessitates your routine get, becoming a changed, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that when all this research started coming out about um, you know, time restricted eating and these kind of like like patterns of the day and when to eat what um started coming out was kind of also when I was entering a phase of having children. Mm-hmm. You know, and what I found was that okay, um I'm maintaining my activity levels at like a pretty um, intense level. Like I like to train pretty intensely um, and I'm either pregnant or nursing pretty perpetually for the last like few years. <laughs> and that experience has been like, okay, I don't, I don't think that, um, you know, time restricted eating is really going to work for me, mm-hmm. you know, especially with like breastfeeding. It's like, you know, you when can't, you're hungry all the time all the time. And I found that like, okay, so, and it's okay to also be like, there are things out there and that's not right for me right now. Like my body's saying like, no, like trying to restrict my time is just, I also like, it's just not going to work for me right now, but okay, what can I do? I'm like, you know, keeping up a certain amount of protein does help me sustain energy levels. Mm -hmm. Another big thing has just been like, uh, instead of really tracking macros, because I've done that before and I'm familiar at this point, like what like how many servings of protein, what that looks like for me, or, you know, a general sense of how many calories I need, like what, like listening to my body and knowing like, oh, I'm full now. I can stop eating. Like I feel full, you know, and like I can have that conversation with my body while I'm eating. But a big shift and and thing that I'm actually currently working on is like less, the less processed the food the better I feel. It really is. And it's like the the results show up a lot quicker. I've been noticing when it's like just kind of trying to simple foods. Simple, non-processed, non-packaged when possible 
foods. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not perfect. I definitely like grab a protein bar here and there, you know, mm -hmm. or have like some snacky stuff here and there, but like trying to focus on more like whole foods is just like that allow that shift alone. So it's like kind of being aware of, um, you know, what, what routines your body and your lifestyle, you know, yeah. are served by, you know, and, and knowing when to recognize like, okay, I'm trying to establish this routine and it is, I don't feel good on that routine. Yeah. Not working for yeah. me feasible or my schedule doesn't allow what what then can I can I try that might work you know and mm -hmm. persisting until you find it yeah I totally agree like your that shift with pregnancy and postpartum and what kind of worked for you and from a health perspective um you know around fertility pregnancy and you know postpartum um things to to keep in mind absolutely so I think one of the things that um Pregnancy was has been a really good it, it's been a really positive experience for me in terms of taking care of my body and listening to my body. So as most of our listeners know, like I've experienced multiple pregnancy losses and like that journey is quite difficult emotionally, physically. And so having a routine to lean into has been really helpful just sort of as like a totem or like you know something to tether me back down to earth you know it's like when you're feeling really really down and in despair like having just one thing to focus on really can be like a lifesaver and pregnancy is no different and I think you know again it's that whole thing of like sometimes not being able to trust what you see. So that's like, those are the moments where like my self-confidence is shaken, right? But going back to routine, going back to what I know about like the science and data is very helpful for me in establishing, okay, what can I control in a good way? What can I do to feed my body, to feed my body like during times of loss, during times of pregnancy? And so I'll talk about being pregnant first. Um, when you're pregnant, like you're not just taking care of yourself. Now you're feeding this whole other entity that is hijacking your body and needs a lot from you physically. There's a huge physical demand and a shift in how your body is processing all of the energy via food that you're putting into it and how it's using all of the energy, you know, the output, which is movement. And so in times that I've been pregnant, my first focus is like, okay, am I getting my um, prenatals in? Am I getting like a healthy amount of omegas, which is, you know, healthy fatty acids? Am I getting a good amount of folate, which is really important for neurological development, B12? Um, and those things, by the way, like just as a side note, like sometimes I will just continue taking my prenatals, pregnant or not pregnant, because for women, especially the amount of nutrients necessary for all bodily functions is just different. And in a pregnant state, you know, that amount of folate and B12 and, and vitamin D for your bones and omegas for your brain and neurological function, it's all good. So sometimes I just continue taking it and there's the added benefit of like the biotin and stuff, which helps your hair growth um, come in. I actually know quite a few people who've taken prenatals just because their hair, they felt like it was duller and like those added nutrients really do help stimulate hair growth. Yeah. But um, so that's the first thing. And then 
like you said, focusing on whole healthy foods, like obviously during pregnancy, like weird cravings come up. With my son, I like suddenly wanted artificial strawberry flavored everything. Like it was so, and I've not, I've never been a strawberry person, like of all the fruits, like it's probably, it was one of my, you know, least favorite fruits. And that totally turned around and I have a very good relationship with strawberries now. (laughs) We're on good terms. (laughs) We're on good terms. We're speaking frequently. (laughs) But um, yeah, focusing on whole foods, even when you have like these weird cravings. Um, Side note, like I heard that when you have pregnancy cravings, it's a way of your body telling you what you need. So like, I don't know that that's always true. Like, I can't really ascertain how, like, strawberry shortcake is, like, something that your body absolutely needs for your baby to grow. Okay. But, maybe, like, like, quick carbs in a way. Yeah, maybe, okay. actually. Maybe. There is a or, place like, for, like, I think, like, salty, carbs, like, so demonized. Yeah. It's like, well, maybe your body just wanted, like, it, yeah. well, it was like, okay, that is something, you know, the craving is signaling, like, we need. Yeah. That's actually a great way to think about it. Like if you really want sweets, like try eating something like a date or like a piece of fruit and see if like your body becomes satiated because there are different signals that you get when you're pregnant that are, it's like, um, what do you call it? It's, it's your animal instinct way of telling your body what it means. Like I, on a totally other note, like have chronically low blood pressure. And I'm convinced I love salty foods because my blood pressure is always so low. Interesting. I know it's a personal hypothesis, but yeah, well, sodium, additional sodium pushes your blood pressure up. Yeah. And so I'm like convinced that I just like love salty foods and briny foods because I'm chronically like low blood pressure. It's interesting because, like, I'm not really, like, a, b- a big, like, salty food person. I actually, like, I think there was a, a, a combined with the, like, old philosophy of, like, low-fat foods. There was also mm-hmm. this, like, no-salt thing yeah. like, going on in diet culture that I feel like I I connected okay. to it. <laughs> um, but I have, like, super low bl- blood pressure to the extent that, like, in, with my first pregnancy, I think I actually had preeclampsia. But yeah. um, towards the end of it. But like my blood pressure by everyone else's standards was normal. So they were like, oh, no, you're fine. And I was like, this is high for me. Um, I've been drinking those. um, I've never really liked like the hydration Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. bits and stuff. They make me feel kind of like waterlogged. But I've been been doing that element one, which is one that's based on uh, salt-based hydration packet. And I literally cannot get enough of these. Like I feel, I like crave it weirdly. Like I have it. At really? My, and it's like, I can feel my body. Like I just like gulp those electrolytes yeah. down for whatever reason. And I'm like, it just, it's almost like a pregnancy craving in the sense that it's like, oh my, this is what my body wants. hundred yeah. percent. So good on them. Hot tip. Oh yeah. I should try those. Um, Kevin and I used to do like a, he still does it. He does like a quarter teaspoon of real salt by that brand Redmond. It's like, uh-huh. it's like totally, it's actually great quality salt. Which sounds yeah. so pretentious and silly, but it's true. <laughs> um, he adds like a quarter teaspoon of that to like a big hydro flask throughout the day. And I used yeah. to do it too. It actually does help your body maintain proper hydration, which, you know, makes a lot of sense because like when you need fluids in the hospital they don't dump a bag of just plain water into your body they have to make sure that the solution 
is isotonic or equal to what you have in your body and your blood is salty. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also has a little bit of potassium and calcium and other things. But like my point is like your body needs that. You're not yeah. just we're 70% water, but there's a lot of other things going on in there too. But yeah, I, I mean, no, totally. I so like with pregnancy, you definitely feel that shift in what your body needs. And then I think in times like postpartum and I think similarly with pregnancy loss, you know, because your, your body is no longer pregnant with pregnancy loss, it's a little different postpartum because you're, you're mourning the shift and, um, you know, it's hard. So emotionally you're in a completely different place than you are postpartum, but physically your body needs to maintain proper nutrition. And so I remember even when I had lost pregnancies, my mom, um, and this is really something that's a privilege. She would like make soup or chicken soup and like make sure that I was, you know, having the appropriate amounts of protein and carbohydrates to allow my body to heal and process what it was going through. And um, similarly, postpartum, just making sure you're getting adequate amounts of protein and fiber and carbohydrates. I think fiber is actually one that we haven't really talked about just yet because it's not technically a macronutrient, but fiber like that you find in whole vegetables and whole fruits. And I say whole, meaning like you're not pulverizing them and putting them into a juice and extracting all the fibrous material, but the fiber itself is really necessary for our body to flush out toxins. That's literally what our poop is made out of. And, you know, it it's what we need in order to complete the whole process of eating the foods, and then eliminating the waste products from our body, which is just as important as the intake. Yeah. Some uh, nutritionists, I work with like a nutritionist with my gym, and she was describing fiber as sort of um, like the the carriers of waste out of our body. So Mm -hmm. it's like you want fiber in there. It literally like like it's like a little donkey, you know, or (laughs) grabbing the waste and putting it on his back and like, yeah the door and I I thought that was hilarious but like um kind of you know accurate with with what you're saying yeah yeah well I could keep talking about food and movement forever and maybe we have a follow-up episode to this I know it definitely a lot of the routine that we talk about I think we'll readdress in one of our future episodes on productivity and organization time management habit you know habit stacking, things like that, because those all kind of intermingle. And I think one of the things that we're really trying to do this season is bring all of these themes together into, you know, practical applications of, you know, how to build confidence in our daily lives. And a lot of that is done through routine, through things like eating well, moving our bodies regularly, um, and then also having those child pose moments where we are just forgiving to ourselves. Yeah. I think that, I mean, one of our original bridge etymologies was that word confidence. We always mm-hmm. return to this one that it literally, literally breaks down to trust in oneself, self trust. Yeah. And I think that we were excited to do this episode because I think that the way that we uh, move our bodies and the way we eat can create self trust. 
Um, but that, you know, that confidence in, you know, those things that you're doing too, it's, it's, they feed each other in a way. Yeah. Makes- yeah. Yeah. I love that feed. Yeah. They feed. <laughs> feed your confidence, honestly, by like feeding yourself and, and trusting your intuition. You yeah. know, I think that the theme we kept returning to, you know, and that like arc of learning about how to move our bodies and how to eat in a way that's, you know, healthful has been just like getting as in touch with our intuition and like doing something, trying something and then reflecting and be like, how did that make me feel? You know, how do I feel when I'm moving my body this way versus this way? How do I feel on like gravitating towards these kind of foods versus these ones or these different things, all these different levers that we have, you know, that we can do. Like humans are so, we are so amazing and so adaptable that like we can, we can survive on a variety of different foods, a variety of different like activity levels. Like we, that's why there, it is glorious. Like we can literally, there's so many different ways you can do it and different people are going to thrive with different combinations. Mm -hmm. Um, but just having that intuition along the way, um, where we were excited to have this, this yeah, conversation. Absolutely. absolutely. So, this was a fun one, Asha. I felt like we learned a little bit more I know, about each other, too. <laughs> Honestly, I can't get enough. I it's know. A, same. same. It's just so all the field. <laughs> All I, well, well, audience, we um, adore you guys. Uh, we like to take little interludes from the amazing interviews we have and just sit down and give you a look into the conversations we like to have with each other. Um, but we'll be back next week with another another episode and we'll see you then. See you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?